1: Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, today we're back to talk about the second reading of the year, and come follow me this year in the Old Testament. And we have Genesis 1 through 2, Moses 2 through 3, and Abraham 4 through 5, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct.
1: Okay, and so what we want to do is start at the very beginning. A very good place to start, (laughs) as one of my favorite boyhood songs says from Julie Andrews' Do Re Mi. And so what I mean by that is Exodus. Wait, what? Exodus? That's the beginning? Well, yeah, so why would I say that? Well, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about where the story begins, how we get back to Genesis, how we go forward from Genesis back to Exodus again, especially when i say exodus i really mean in slavery in egypt and then we'll talk about when god began to create and who i have sort of a who what when where why outline for this ben for this whole conversation yeah so that we can explain what's going on with these creation stories and what how should we understand them and what do we do with them and so, as an understanding of them, we're going to go through Genesis 1 and, of course, the other texts, which are equivalent in the sense that they give the creation story as temple text. But this is more obvious with Genesis 1, perhaps. And then what we do with that, of course, is the same thing that we do with the temple. But let's go through this one step at a time, shall we?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, in the, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we have quite a few creation stories here. That's right. Creation accounts. Not only is there Genesis 1 and 2, but we also have Moses 2 and 3. But Moses 2 and 3 are basically Joseph Smith's rewriting of Genesis 1 and 2 because it's the it's the Joseph Smith translation, right? So this is the inspired translation he gets, kind of goes back and inserts a few little things, makes a few modifications to that account to, for it to fit the overall narrative of the book of Moses. Abraham is the most unique, probably, of the creation accounts that we have in scripture, just the way that it approaches it. And so I think there's a lot that it can add when we get into our discussion of the creation as a, a temple text. And then we have our our temple account, right? Our temple creation account in our tradition that's not in our scriptural canon, but I mean it is written down and it's in our in our temple canon. So in one sense it is part of our, our sacred text or part of our our tradition, probably just as authoritative as
1: as the ones that we have in in the scriptures, don't you think? Some might think more authoritative, but what's interesting to me is that the that all these accounts, although they have their differences, are really not that different overall from right. each other. Right there is a sense in which we can see you know scholars have noted that the authors of genesis 1 and 2 are different authors with different purposes and so that the accounts are different and some readers may not have noticed this it's i always tell people who want to take the bible literally that uh that, that they'll have to avoid reading the text to be able to do that because once <laughs> you go start reading the text and you go through the first two chapters you already find contradictions right yeah Good so point. they are so they are different in some sense but overall they're telling a story about how things became to be but that's why i say we don't really start in genesis now last week we covered moses 1 and abraham 3 and this is in in the pre-mortal realm where we're going to where we find out why god began to create eventually right in in moses 1 we find out where we fit into god's creation in abraham 3 but we're still not at the beginning of the story So that's not it. And Genesis isn't the beginning of the story either because that where it says in the beginning makes it seem like it is, right? But, and that's actually when God began to create and we'll talk about what that verb is and how it's translated. And Joseph Smith had something to say about, but, uh, and of course, and then there's which is the first word and no one really knows what that means. Um, It can be translated when God began to create rather than in the beginning in the beginning already has a theological presupposition to it. And so it's not when God began to create, but in Exodus when God's people are enslaved in Egypt and call out to God. I think this is the beginning of the story, Ben. Mm. God's people are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out to God and God hears hears their cry. And so if you can just picture borrowing from a story from Rob Bell's book, What is the Bible?, I'm in Egypt. My daughter asks me why I have stripes on my back. I'm a slave. I'm, you know, making bricks. And, and I say, well, you know, they up, they up the quota of the bricks and I have to get my own straw now. And at this point, she has to ask, why? Why are we? How did this happen? Why are we here? How did this happen? Right. Mm-hmm. How did things become to be this way that we're here enslaved in Egypt? And that's where, like, I always have conversations with my mother-in-law, who's an historian, about how thing why things are the way they are. And and she always says, Well, to understand this, we have to go back. And I always joke that she says, to understand anything, we have to go all the way back to Adam. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't always go all the way back to Adam, but that's that's my joke with her, right? Because we always say, Well what's why World War One? Or sorry, why World War Two? Well World War One. Why World War One? Well, this assassination. Well why this assassination? Well this rival why? And so you just end up back yep. at Adam before you can get an explanation. <laughs> and so in answering the question of how things became to be you have this creation story and this is a typical thing that's done it's done in the surrounding nations or peoples or tribes at the time and it's done later too you know it's done by the greeks it's done by the romans the aeneid is a version of this you know it tells how the romans became the romans and it's not really historical it's mythological
0: yeah its purpose isn't historical or maybe it could be termed sacred history but yeah the purpose of it isn't to tell history. The purpose of it is to say how we got here, and so how you explain how you got here, the etiology, right? Right, isn't a matter at least in in an ancient worldview. It's not important to recount a history in order to explain how you got here. You can explain how you got here through a mythological story, and it, and it gives purpose and meaning to it. So you know, like you were saying, when you say the story starts in Egypt with the people calling out to God, well, you know, then we have Moses being called by God. Like we talked about last time with Moses chapter one, God says, I have a work for you to do Moses. And after he explains his work and all he's done and why his purposes are, what does he do? He starts with the creation to explain how this came about. This is where this all came from. And this is why I'm going to send you to do what I'm going to send you to do. And so it, it it really creates that, so to speak, <laughs> um, that purpose with within uh, the the broader context. It makes sense that then in the story of Abraham, he's doing it with Abraham, right? It, you know, giving him an understanding and and purpose to to what he is supposed to become and do. You know, we have a very brief account of this a couple times in the Book of Mormon. We have the example of the sons of Mosiah going over to the Lamanites and teaching them. And the first thing they do is they go back and they recount the creation. They start at the creation of the world, it says, and then go from there. Because they have to build this purpose and identity of who they are as a people and why they're there and and what it all is going on. What's interesting to me is that Nephi in the Book of Mormon He is constantly referencing the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt as like their foundational origin myth, right? And he doesn't go back to creation that much. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about that in the context of what we're going to talk about here is that in a scholarly sense that we look at now, much of Genesis, what is written now in Genesis by authors, um, much of it was actually recorded, uh, scholars think it was recorded after the Babylonian return. And what happened is when they were in Babylon, they became exposed to a lot more of the, the, the mythological traditions of people outside. So the Babylonian tradition and so forth. And so the concepts of, of creation and origin and etiology became more fundamental to them. And so this is that's actually after Nephi's time. And so it's very interesting to me that Nephi is much more focused on not that he didn't know about any creation myths or not that those didn't exist among his people, but that they weren't as as much formed I think in the Jewish mindset and at least in in Nephi's mind as this, you know, deliverance from Egypt myth type of thing. And so that's what he goes back to.
1: Now did you mean Ben that they were composed Post-exile or in exile and then cobbled together post-exile? My understanding is that they're somewhat, at least somewhat composed in exile, right? And then yes, cobbled that's together true. post-exile.
0: Yeah. And, and exactly which parts there's, you know, I guess there's a lot of debate on. There's plenty of parts of Genesis that are obviously pre-exile. But what's interesting to me is that the way that they're put together and ordered and so forth takes into account very much an ancient worldview that fits in a context of a broader culture than just the Jewish culture. We're talking about, you know, Syrian and Babylonian and, and Persian and Egyptian, all the different cultures that surround them, you know, were are much more focused on the creation as being the foundation of, of where their, their peoples came from. And so it makes sense that yes, the Hebrew culture had that, but the story of creation wasn't as central to them as the story of Exodus. That was like their origin story.
1: And the, and the Exodus story and that story of deliverance and and, and the, the idea of the people of God being in Egypt and being delivered out of bondage is the central story both for the Book of Mormon uh, as well as the Bible. Right. So it's for the Bible, for the Book of Mormon. And it's actually the central story in, in the Quran too. Yeah. Now, Ben, you and I have read uh, some of these ancient Mesopotamia myths, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Descent of Ishtar to the Underworld, the Enuma Elish, or Epic of Creation, yes. etc., and we may refer to those from time to time. Very conservative commentators would say, you know, we're not saying that, um, that the, the authors of Genesis are borrowing from these writings, but that they share the same worldview, and, and so therefore their writings would be similar. Whereas C.S. Lewis, who's I think the most quoted non-Latter Day Saint and Latter Day Saint General Conferences, you know, it's he's so often quoted, has has no problem at all admitting that these texts, that these these myths, were taken from others and and adopted in some sense, and we can see this. I, I always point out that this is what happens in the Quran too. That you take, you have stories that are biblical stories that are then adapted to the purposes. Of the Quranic author or authors in in giving um, and doing something else with the story, making their own point. So now that you brought up the exile, Ben, earlier when, when you and I were talking pre show and I said the story starts in Exodus. You pointed out that another way to think about it would be that it actually starts post-exile. And so that's true in the sense that it's post-exile that the Bible gets put together, that these texts, these disparate texts become one thing. Well, they're reforming
0: their identity, you know, after having been in exile. And so that's a very important part of that.
1: Right. Yeah. So we're going back to Jerusalem now out of exile, out of Babylon, back into Jerusalem. And how do we now be... Jewish. How do we come out of this Babylonian way of being, out of this out of this exile, back into our own identity, right? And so, this text that we call the Bible, this library, I should say, that we call the Bible, becomes then. They take all these texts that are written over a period of about a thousand years and put them together as one narrative. And it's so interesting to me, Ben, because the Jews put them together as one narrative, but they don't read them that way. Hmm. They actually do a lot of a lot of uh, proof texting, right? A lot of jumping around here and there and reading this and that and uh, proof texting, admittedly proof texting without any reservations. And, and I don't mean that in any disparaging way whatsoever. Sometimes I can have a negative connotation and looking not for answers and not, not looking at this narrative, but looking for wisdom, realizing that, that whatever is written there has to be interpreted and that it has to be adapted and understood in, in its meaning to, to us today. Right to the reader, for it to be actually of use, right? So I think there's really wisdom in that, in that approach. And again, so it's interesting to me that the Christians are really the only ones who are reading the Bible, as far as I know, as one narrative. But that is the way it looks, right? It looks like it's this one narrative. And by the way, um, we have the books in a different order, right, from the Jews, such that it looks like the prophets, who are in a different order in the Jewish Bible, are going to be pointing us to Christ. And so that's part of how it's put together, mm-hmm. uh, and the and 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 the whole story, right, points to a deliverance because we can take the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the whole Bible, as because the New Testament does the same thing, right? We're going to be delivered from the bondage of, of this of slavery to sin, by a redeemer, right? This Messiah that was prophesied, in in the Old Testament. Yeah, but but we have to go back to the beginning, right? We're here to talk about the beginning tonight. <laughs> but but again, I just, I wanted to point out that I, I, for me, the beginning really is we're in slavery in Egypt and now we have to explain how things became to be, you know, when God began to create how things came to be and how we got from there to here. And so that takes us all the way back to in the beginning.
0: It, it kind of reminds me of those movies where you start the movie and the first five to 10 minutes of the movie are actually the end and then it rewinds and goes back to the beginning, right?
1: Or at least if not the end, at least somewhere in the middle of the story, yeah. right? They're showing you an epilogue before.
0: And so yeah. sometimes that 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 kind of is like, okay, how did how did we get here? All right, we're going to go back and and talk about it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we discussed uh briefly before starting recording was this question of why why do we have so many accounts or you know, we can answer that from a mechanical perspective. You know, we can say, well, we have this account because this author wrote this, and this account because this author wrote this, and and you know, this account because Joseph Smith did this way, and this account because Joseph Smith this, did this way, and this account for this purpose, and that's fine. But I think maybe better than why do we have all the accounts is what do we profit? What do we gain from from having all these different accounts? What are what are we to understand from the fact that we have all the accounts? And and at least uh, for me, one of the ways to, to look at it is, is just to see that from different perspectives and retelling of these, you get different emphasis sometimes. And, and this all depends on sort of the, the background and the purpose, the aim, and cultural experience of the author and identifying the author isn't always straightforward in these like like you said Christopher you know bible scholarship now identifies genesis 1 as having a different author from
1: genesis 2 yeah and they're different they're different stories so i think one thing we can do to to answer your question and and by the way the, f- the first thing i would suggest listeners do with the question is just sit with it Right. Sometimes, especially in, in uh, Latter-day Saintism, I think that's what we have to say now, right? We don't say Mormonism. In Latter-day <laughs> Saintism, as Latter-day Saints, I could say, we we really seem to be concerned with having the answers to everything. We think that we have the answers to everything. Right. And sometimes it's better to have questions than answers. You know, I trained as a philosopher, and we're trained to ask good questions. And a good question can really go a long way. you know, and, and a lot of times, by the way, as you study the history of philosophy, it's really the questions that are the good stuff. A lot of the answers that are given, you'll end up disagreeing with, or later philosoph- philosophers will disagree with, earlier philosophers, and we get better and better answers as we go along. But, but we're, we're not settled on any answer, right? We continue to ask the question. So I would say, sit with the question, ask the question, listen in silence, let God speak to you in that way. But I think we can also, you know, to give to Aver an answer, right? I think if we look back at the idea that there were different authors, well, then that gives us a clue. I'm not just saying, I'm not just trying to give the mechanical answer that you pointed to, Ben. It's okay. We have this text because we right. had this author and that text for the other author, but rather to say, why were there different accounts? Why are there different authors? And to me, the answer an answer I should say is because they had different purposes, Right. Um, and, when, and when I say different purposes, they could be like purposes, but different contexts is another possibility. So ultimately, I think where we want to end up with this, spoiler alert, right? If we take Genesis 1 as a temple text, recognizing that the instruction in the temple, the instruction we're given in the temple is about the creation, and this is, this is well known, and it's not it's not something that we can't talk about outside of the temple, right? And if we realize that Genesis 1 may have been used the same way in antiquity in some sense then the reason for the text and the reason for the, the the different accounts is to do that same thing, regardless of what what the difference is. At least that's what it looks like with Genesis 1 and Moses 1 and 2, and or at least Moses 1, as you pointed out. Now, why Abraham 3? You know, I, I told you, Ben, pre-recording, we, we talked and I mentioned that it could be an attempt to reconcile the differences between Genesis 1 and 2, right? Mm-hmm like to say okay the difference is explained by by saying something like there's a a, a spiritual creation and then there's a material creation a physical creation mm-hmm. i don't know that, that that's the answer i'm not sure i don't i don't really like that answer i mean i i'm okay with the idea that there's a spiritual creation preceding a physical creation it's not that hard for us to identify with that because anytime we do something we sort of think it through in our own minds before we act or at least Hopefully we're doing that. Sometimes Americans tend to act first and, and then ask questions later.
0: <laughs> well, that's the problem,
1: right? Yeah, American pragmatic. I think trend. That's,
0: that's the purpose of the pattern is you need to think it out and plan it out first before you go and, yeah. and do.
1: So I'm okay with that. You know, measure once, cut twice. Uh, the other way around is nothing but headaches. I've seen it happen. But just because I think that there can be those two answers doesn't mean that those two texts are different necessarily for that reason. Right. And to try to give an apologetic answer in that way doesn't really suit me. It just doesn't, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. You know, I'm not looking for apologetic answers. I'm I'm mostly looking for truth. And and the evidence points to different authors with different purposes. Right.
0: And I don't think we need to like try to, you know mash these accounts and try to create like one master creation account right yes indeed i think i think rather we can approach each one as something unique in and of itself or special in and of itself that's why for me abraham stands out just because the way that it approaches things is unique and so i ask myself well why does it approach it this way you know yeah not because i think it's a truer account not because i think it helps reconcile the other ones but just because it approaches it in a very different way. So you think to yourself, okay, if this isn't a wrong way to approach it, not that it's more right than the others, but this if this is not a wrong way to approach it, what does this tell me? If it's not wrong to talk about they, the gods, as forming and organizing the earth, what does that mean? Even though the creation is organized in the exact same way, like the different periods and order, it talks about things in, in a little bit different way. And there's there's several phrases through here, like one of my favorite verses, chapter four, verse 18, and the gods watched those things which they had ordered until they obeyed. I've always really liked that verse. I've referenced it several times throughout this, just the, the concept, the idea that that would be a method of creation, so to speak, for God, right? And the word creation isn't even used in chapter four. It's all about forming and organizing.
1: Yeah, you know, Ben, when you say that we don't have to make one account out of these, you're pointing back again to those who put together the Bible, right? Because there were these two different accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they could have either combined them and given us one instead of two contradictory accounts, at least in some points, or they could have Left out one, they could have excluded one and only included the other, and yet they included both of them. So they seem to be okay with including both of them. Why would we not include both of them? Why would we not include all four of them? And by the way, I would go over and look at the the Quran too. As I've mentioned, there's something taught in the Quran about the garden myth that isn't in any of our standard works and is taught in the temple, and it's in the Qur'an. Yeah. So I can look to these different texts to get a sense, and I can sort of triangulate. I can do the same thing that we mentioned in the introductory episode on the Old Testament when it comes to reading translations. Here I'm looking at different accounts. And then you said something about how the gods are mentioned in Abraham 4, It just right? says, yeah. Yeah, the gods. Well, there's no mention of the gods in Genesis 1, but it does say we. And people like to say, and the Quran does the same thing. God is always saying we, right? So there's Why a change in is, pronouns.
0: It doesn't there always is. use the same pronoun. So
1: That's true, yeah. But but there is this we, and uh, as God is speaking of we, and people like to explain this in terms of a, a plural of majesty. The royal we. The royal we. Yeah. But this is not part of the ancient Hebrew language. Right, that's not, that's how, not the, how it works. Right. So that's not a good explanation.
0: So you were saying something earlier about how— There's a temptation sometimes in Latter-day Saint commentary to present an apologetic for Genesis 1 and 2 being different accounts as Genesis 1 being a spiritual creation and Genesis 2 being a a physical creation. And that that didn't really bear out well because these are actually different authors. And I think that that's a a really fair assessment of that. Um, Having said that, the way that Abraham 4 and 5 read do present it at least from a Latter-day Saint perspective as almost like a planning session and then an actual go down and carry it out because you have a, you have this long discussion in here, the gods, they're, they're counseling, they're saying these things and they have things. They say that it would do this. And it says they prepared the waters that they might bring forth great whales. So all of these things are like, they are, It's almost a a deist concept where they're like ordering the universe and then kind of letting it go from there, right? But if you approach this chapter four as like a planning session, it's like almost they're you know drawing things out and seeing how it's all going to work and deciding this is going to happen here and this is going to happen here. Kind of fits in well with Joseph Smith's concept that he's developing at this time of the Council of Gods and... And this fits with the word Elohim being plural, this more than one. Actually, that's not just a plural, that's a,
1: a three or more word, right? Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Ben, because the ancient biblical Hebrew, Arabic, and even today Arabic and probably Hebrew too, have a dual form. Yeah,
0: there's a singular, a dual, and a plural. Right. Yeah, plural being three or more. So the other thing here in, in chapter 5 You get to the the seventh day, and the seventh day is the day that the gods actually take their plans, so to speak, and they go down to the earth, and they do everything. They do everything that they just planned out to do those six days. And the reason I bring up this point, Christopher, is because we're going to start talking about John Walton here in a second. And one of John Walton's main points about his approach to this and then getting into looking at Genesis 1 as a temple text is that the seventh day is the day of rest. It's the day that God takes his place in the place that he's created to rule it. And uh, at least from the perspective of the Abraham account, that really is, is an interesting uh, way to approach it as saying, hey, the seventh day— This so-called day of rest, which John Walton points out, by the way, is not relaxing. Right, That's not what rest is, okay? Is actually the day that the gods actually go down and do the actual work, the actual organizing, the actual forming, whereas before it was all this planning session type of thing, right? That is interesting. And not to say that that's that's exactly what John Walton's talking about, but I had his concept in mind as I was reading this. And I thought, wow, you know, to John Walton, that's when God actually goes down and sits on his throne and starts ruling, right? And in Abraham, that's when the gods, the seventh day, when we think God is just, you know, sitting there doing nothing, resting, right? Our concept, this is the day when he actually does the most quote unquote work, right? He goes down and and does it
1: all. Yeah, no, in that text, in Abraham, we don't actually get the word day, right? Just Correct. Period, yeah. We get time. Period, right? Time. Yeah, yeah we get time. Correct. And, and as a matter of fact, in even in Genesis, in the Hebrew word that's translated day in our you know King James Version, it doesn't mean day, right? It means a, a period of time. And yet, the explanation that John Walton gives us as, you know, if Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology and is a temple text really does take each of these periods as a 24-hour period. Yeah. Because what he's saying is that this isn't about material creation. Now, it's interesting because Walton actually does believe in creation ex nihilo, whereas as Latter-day Saints, we believe that God organized out of pre-existing matter what he organizes. Uh And so it's interesting because for John Walton, he's saying the same thing in in Genesis 1 he's saying Genesis 1 is not about material creation it's about ordering a cosmos Now cosmos is the Greek word for order so and, and it's equivalent to saying the universe mm-hmm. in today's terms right mm-hmm. So what God does is he takes chaos right which is disorder and he turns it into order right and as we go into Walton's idea it's going to be based on giving a name and a function which we can compare to, When we give a child a name and a blessing, the idea is that for the ancients to exist doesn't mean to have uh, properties, you know, like extension and uh, material properties, right? Material properties, but rather to have a name and a function, a purpose. And Mm -hmm. so it turns out and a purpose, right? Yeah. It turns out that an ancient temple dedication was typically of six days. And on the seventh day, God actually takes his place in the temple because that's what the temple is for. And the temple is a microcosm of the macrocosm, of the, of, the, of the wider cosmos, right? And at the same time, we are microcosms. And so there's this sense in which we can read, even though in the New Testament, when, when it says your body is a temple, that's really a plural you, we can still look at the human being and mystics have for ages as a microcosm right that reflects the order in the cosmos so there's a sense in which we can order our own souls just as we order the body of christ the community of christ and as we order the temple and and thus the universe right and so it actually becomes a concept that reminds me of confucius's idea right that to have a well ordered polity that it takes order in the individual order in the family and the household right order in the community and expanding circles, which we also see in Hierocles circles in Stoicism. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this uh, when in the Doctrine and Covenants, we were talking about the, the temple multiple times. We talked about how the temple is this symbolic representation of who we are to become as a people, but then also as individuals. And so going to the temple is going through this experience, representation of creation, our own creation and moving through that process where wh- what happens you know we we symbolically enter the presence of god and we sit down to quote unquote rest right this is the seventh day rest we take up our abode in the presence of god celestial room and that's where the real understanding is supposed to start yes I mean, you're supposed to go in there. I mean, everything else is sort of explicitly taught and given to you, even if it's, sorry, I say explicitly, but still symbolically, but still given to you symbolically. And then you go in and sit in the celestial room and there's nothing. It's just you and God. Now, you may be whispering with the person next to you, but that's kind of the the concept, right, is that that that's where it's supposed to, to be you know you mentioned the 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 overall theme of the creation being bringing order from chaos this is represented and i don't know why i hadn't really seen this before i mentioned this to you before and you're like yeah of course Ben <laughs> but that each day as it's mentioned in the creation periods it talks about the evening and the morning as the period you know in in jewish timekeeping the day starts at the going down of the sun not at the coming up of the sun. But to us in our conception, at least now for me, the day starts when the sun comes up. Really it starts when I get out of bed. But <laughs> even though we say it
1: starts at midnight, right? But we still yeah, really even think though, of it. As even though when the sun in a technical
0: up. sense, yeah, in a technical sense, we start it at midnight. Conceptually we really do it when the sun comes up. But in Jewish timekeeping, and even to this day, you know, the Sabbath begins Friday when the sun goes down that's when the Sabbath yeah. begins. And so this creation period is is starts with the darkness which is symbolic representation of chaos. And so you have the chaos that precedes the order of the day. And so each time period or each day that there's creation happening God is bringing order from the chaos within that time period. You talked about the temple dedication historically in the ancient world taking Seven days duration. Nowadays, they don't typically take a week to do it. It's at least three days. They do different dedications, but it reminded me of when we did Doctrine and Covenants section one hundred nine and one ten, which is the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. So I went back and looked at it. The temple is dedicated on March twenty seventh, eighteen thirty six, which is a Sunday. That's that when the dedicatory prayer is first given, and then section one ten talks about when jesus and elijah and elias and moses come to the temple and that's actually the next sunday so it's technically
1: like oh
0: eight days away right not not quite seven <laughs> but i thought well, it that depends
1: was... on when you count them ben sure. are you counting from sundown
0: that's right you know that that was the the next thing that i was asking i don't know there's something but, for uh, listeners you know, to think about despite the despite the fact that there may be a technicality there it was really fascinating, you know, and it seems purposeful, at least from Joseph Smith's standpoint, it would seem quite a coincidence if he, if he just happened to do it this way, that he would start the dedication and then on that day, that seventh day, or in this case, it might have been the eighth day, <laughs> Jesus literally comes to his temple and accepts it. That's the seventh day of rest, God coming to his temple and taking up residence in his temple. And so it's just interesting how that kind of worked out. Yeah, we
1: should have done the math on this, Ben. (laughs) I I didn't know you were going to mention this. This is good stuff. We'll leave it to the listener to to do the math on that. So I know where we want to end up with this conversation, Ben, is in the temple, right? We have a temple text, right? But Genesis 1, seen as a temple text, tells us what to do with it. And in a sense, what we do with it is, well, if you're preparing to go to the temple, you can, of course, read and, and meditate and ponder on that. And actually, even once we go through the conversation we're going to have about what to do with uh, when you go to the temple, you can actually do that in some sense without going to the temple. Right. But the temple really serves the purpose as the place to do that. I mean, there's a sense in which I, I wouldn't discourage anyone from going to the temple, but there's a sense in which it's really about intention. Right. Because you can go to the temple and not do the thing that that we're going to say is the the reason for going to the temple. And you can do that thing without going to the temple. And so let's go through first, though, what is meant by a temple dedication of the world, right? Of the whole world, the whole earth as a place that God has prepared for us in Genesis 1. And then we'll come back to that. Christopher, I want to sit back just a second on this.
0: I want to emphasize the point we talked about, about creation. So in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we have from Joseph Smith this concept of of uh, creatio ex materia so i mean that's not from joseph smith but you know the creatio ex materia means creation from material or creating from something from material that already exists creatio ex nihilo creation from nothing so the traditional if that's the right word way of reading the the creation account is that the word created in Genesis chapter one verse one means creatio ex nihilo.
1: Well that's the Christian uh mainstream Christian interpretation, okay, right? there you go. not the Jewish interpretation. Okay, Good, yeah. good.
0: Yeah. Mainstream Christian interpretation.
1: There's nothing Ben in the language that should have us read it that way. Correct. Again, there's a there's a presupposition, a theological presupposition that goes into reading the text that way Correct. and translating it that way. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so the the actual Hebrew word is bara, which I don't know exactly how to pronounce it because I don't speak Hebrew, but it's bara. And this word can be translated create, but the English connotation of the word create, the baggage of that word really implies ex nihilo, but that's not what the Hebrew word implies. Joseph Smith actually made this point. I'm going to read uh, just a small section out of his King Follett sermon. He says, You ask the learned doctors why they say the world was made out of nothing, and they will answer, doesn't the Bible say he created the world? And they infer from the word create that it must be made out of nothing. Now, the word create came from the word bara, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize, the same as a man would organize materials and build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element and in which dwells all the glory element had an existence from the time he had the pure principles of element are principles, which can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning and can have no end. So all this is sort of an intro segue into the concept that John Walton gets into where he presents creation, not in exactly the same way that Joseph Smith does, but in a way that, it's not a material creation. Rather, it's a creation in which you're giving purpose, function, and a name to
1: something. Yeah, before we go into that, I just have one comment, Ben. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, too, by the way. I, m- I made brief mention of it earlier. I, I love that you quoted from the King Follett Sermon. I love the King Follett Sermon. You know, here we're dealing today with. Even though our focus in, in this recording this episode is really on Genesis 1 as a temple text, we've already sort of equated all the texts with each other and accepted all of them. And why not, you know, one more if you want to go look in the Quran, like I said. But the idea that that I wanted to bring out here with you mentioning the King Follett sermon is that some of the most unique aspects of our, our doctrine, right, as Latter-day Saints, really come from that sermon and from the Pearl of Great Price. And so, there may be something to to what you've brought out from Abraham. I think there, there, we can say there's something unique about that. And from this interpretation uh, that you bring out from the King Follett sermon, I read an article. You shared it with me. We, we both read this article. It was an article by Jana Rice that you shared with me, Ben. Oh, about how
0: we don't really spend much time with the Pearl Great Prize.
1: Yeah, it was suggested that instead of going into the Old Testament for a whole year, that perhaps we should. Spend a year on the Pearl Great Price. That would be interesting. I have to say that mm-hmm. would be interesting. Mm-hmm. And then in one sense, we're not doing that with this episode. And at the same time, we're saying, here are these different accounts. We can take all of them together and not try to make into them one account, as is done with, for instance, the First Vision accounts, right? Yeah. What we call the First Vision the church has put forward an account of it that's this unified account made out of the different accounts. And you can do that with this. Yeah, I think you can you can find a way to reconcile the seeming contradictions between Genesis 1 and 2. And we'll go into that, I think, a little bit when we talk about Adam and Eve next time. Sure. We'll probably bring out some things that we won't go into this time. But let's go into this uh, this idea of John Walton's from his book, Let's see, there are two books. There's Genesis 1 is Ancient Cosmology, I think is the original, more scholarly book. And then the one that's not less scholarly, but but more intended for a public uh, audience is what I mean to more say. More approachable, maybe. More approachable, perhaps, is uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And in this book, what John Walton is telling us is that in antiquity, for something to exist, it, it's not that it has these physical properties, as we said before, but rather that it has a role... And a function in an ordered system, he says. And so he goes into the idea of Bara, just like Joseph Smith, to say that it doesn't mean that something that God actually created something out of nothing, but rather gave functions to. So anytime you read created, you could read takes it out of this formless, void, functionless context and puts it into a context where it now has a function assigned to it in the cosmos. In fact, that's actually what it means to have a cosmos, right? is to have an ordered system. And so all the parts have to have their name and their function and their purpose and their place in that system for it to be a cosmos. And so the narrative in Genesis one, two starts not with no matter, mm-hmm. he says, but with no functions. Yeah. And then it starts to assign functions by separating things out and naming them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the points I like that he brought up when it says, you know, we've got this translation without form and void, actually he he approached those hebrew words and went to different ways of of translating those and gave a much better translation and it was something like without function or without purpose not these form and void don't at least in our in our vernacular nowadays don't don't tell us as much as something like you know without purpose or without
1: function well again there's what you called baggage, right? There there are these theological presuppositions that translators bring to the text that then influence the way that we think about them. And so one of our purposes here is to give the listener a, a new way of thinking about the text, right? Which is actually not new, right? But actually old, it's actually ancient, is to try to mm-hmm. understand it.
0: That's one of the points he really drives home on this is he, he, may, he may make it a little too strong, but he says, this is the literal way to read the Bible. <laughs> You know, if you want to read the Bible literally, this is the literal way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for those who want to read it literally, no, no, no. If it says he created the world in seven days, that means he did. And true enough, says Walton. But what do you mean by create, right? That's the difference. So this is a creation of an ordered system, which is making the earth a temple. And it's not a material creation. And so it really tells us nothing. Genesis 1, he says, tells us nothing about the age of the earth. Nothing at all. So it's kind of an interesting perspective for Latter-day Saints, especially, and especially with an understanding of what the temple is and, and its place in in our own liturgy, in our own worship, in our own religion.
0: Well, to stick with the temple concept, I think one of the points he brings up with that is that if the creation account in Genesis 1 is the dedication of the temple this week, then the account isn't of the building of the temple, which may have taken years and it doesn't talk about all the you know the nitty gritty and the the construction materials and the time it took to do this and the architecture and all this da da, da 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 That's not the account. The account is of the dedication and the putting of the temple to its use and
1: purpose as a temple. That's a really good point. I don't know if I was clear on that. Thank you for bringing that out. Right. It's this is the dedication of the temple. So on day one, he says in verses four and five. It's clear that there's a period of light being separated from a period of darkness. And so each period is given a name. And so it's not that God is creating light on day one, but a period of light. Hmm. So in other words, there's already light. He's just giving it a name, right? He's saying, okay, this is period I'm going to call day. And So it really doesn't matter what word you use. The point is that I'm taking a period of light And I'm giving it a name. So, by the way, that gives us a basis for time. Right. right? Giving that period a a name and saying this is the period, that gives us a basis for time. And the second day...
0: Which is fundamental to our human consciousness and construct, is the concept of time.
1: Exactly. So, on the second day, he gives us a basis for weather. And on the third day, a basis for growing food. So, after these major functions are established that are necessary for human existence as you pointed out everything from time down through you know dealing with the weather and growing food according to we have to deal with the weather to grow food right then he assigns functionaries to their to their respective functions and so all the functions that we see are relative to our own experiences as, as humanity and god declares them good as he puts each one in place he declares it good and that's good because they function on our behalf, right? Yeah, the word good is always understood as good for what? Well, good in that
0: it fulfills the purpose that it was created for, the purpose that it was set to. When God gives purpose and and functionality to all these things, he then comes
1: and says, They're good, meaning they're doing what they're supposed to do. Exactly. So we've said that the cosmos in the ancient world, in the Bible, is portrayed as a temple, right? The temple is designed to be this microcosm, right? A a micro model of the cosmos. And so temples are built for gods to rest in, which again, you said, Ben, doesn't mean relaxing. It's actually a place of maintaining order and security. So it's a place of God sitting on his throne to rule the earth. It's more about whose earth it is, Right, This this creation idea, this, this bringing of order is something that an archetypal king does. And then he rules and maintains that order. That's part of his job is to maintain that order and security. So when we talk about resting, we don't mean just kicking back and putting up your feet, right? It's interesting, you know, because what we do in the temple, we call it temple work. You know, we go in the temple, we do work. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so God is creating this dwelling place, and he's putting people into it, and they're in his image, and so they're representatives of him. And the Islamic tradition, they're called, you know, this is called khilafah, right? This idea that that you are the, the representative or vicegerent of God on earth. And then he takes up his own place at the helm, right? He's going to be at the head of all this, and he's going to maintain the order that he's established. He creates and maintains the order. And so we mentioned that the dedication of the temple takes seven days. And during those seven days, mirroring what we see in terms of setting up time, uh, weather, and agriculture, you can see kind of a mirroring that in what happens in those seven days in an actual temple dedication in antiquity, which is first the functions of the temple are actually proclaimed, right? The furniture and the functionaries are actually installed, and then the priests take up their place. And their role. And in the very end, on the last day, then the deity enters and he takes up his rest, as we've explained. So if we look at the cosmos as a temple, then Genesis 1 can be understood as presenting this this creation of a of an order in terms of a temple dedication. The creation of the cosmos really means the dedication of a temple in that in, in this sense. And so we don't have to think again of these seven days as anything other than calendar days and and it's about the work that God does the bara is the work that God does not about things that he makes but about things that he does that's interesting in
0: in light of what we talked about like the first podcast we did you know the intro podcast one of the distinguishing features features of hebrew thought is was inherent in the language and and that was that the language at its, at its base, all the roots of the words are actually verbs first, because it's about action. And then you derive nouns from the verbs. Whereas the way that we conceive of language is actually more object-based. We think of nouns much more and, and verbs just act on those nouns. That's kind of borne out and, and also feeds the mentality of, of action being the principal focus.
1: Well, and it explains why we have this idea. So you're saying that the action focus is is what's actually going on in the text, but the way it's read by those who want to read this as creatio ex nihilo is because of our Greek not Hebrew, but Greek way of thinking yep. in which we focus on the things. And so it's the thingness of that, that we're interested in. Yeah, whereas yeah. the, whereas the authors are interested in the action that's taking place, yeah, what
0: God is doing, what he's doing exactly yeah, his, his work, which is really interesting in light of also Moses one, where he tells Moses, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man, you know, because he had just talked about all of these things that he had made and But then he's saying that his work never ends, right? And it's not about the things he makes. It's about his work never ending, ongoing on and on and on.
1: Excellent point. Yes, indeed. So the theology, Walton tells us of this text, really shows us a God who is the founder and CEO, he calls him, of the cosmos, right? He's brought everything into order. He's established all the functions, and he keeps this this thing, this system ordered moment by moment. And so, it's really a different view of creation from what has been put forward, and and it also speaks of the real issue of creation. Walton tells us, which is not what is there, but who is in charge, hmm. right? Who is in charge? God is in charge. We don't want to spend a lot of time talking about science versus the Bible. I think we I think we've sort of already dealt with that, if not explicitly, then implicitly, right? But. Just to go over a point that um, Walton makes, which is that Concordism says the Bible is true because its statements are really scientifically accurate. This is what is believed to be a literal way of reading, which Walton says is not a literal way of reading because it's reading something into the text that the author didn't intend. So he's saying, no, the Bible is true because the perspective that it's giving is adequate as as a framework, he says, for communicating the functional and theological truths that are being put forward in this text.
0: It's not approaching the scientific analytical level at all.
1: No, not at all. It's not even attempting to.
0: And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the idea because the, the ancients didn't have the the scientific mindset. That wasn't how they approached the world. That Wasn't how they viewed the the functionality of things around them. You know, you get things like even here in the creation we have this word in the Genesis account, in our translation, like the King James Version translation, we have this word "firmament," and that never meant anything to me. In the Book of Abraham, it calls it an expanse, but then in the NRSV, it says "dome." Yeah, which actually is like, oh, okay, that's what the ancients thought of this. You know, they call a firmament, but we don't use that word anymore. Yeah, we would call it a dome, and that's actually how they viewed the world. They thought the sky was a solid dome that sat over the top of the earth and that all of the stars were either holes in that dome that leaked through the light from heaven or they were fixed in the dome like light bulbs would be stuck in the dome right and so everything under that dome was this area that and the dome was holding back the waters of heaven and then there were the waters beneath so this was like the the ancient conception of it and it wasn't It wasn't meant to be a scientific conception. This was just how they – this was their worldview, right? Right. And so understanding that that's what their worldview was, you start understanding, oh, that's why the creation was given in these terms or the story of the creation is given in these terms. God isn't trying to change their scientific understanding. He's trying to use their worldview to communicate
1: some important truths about who he is and how he works. Exactly. So it's not about material creation again. So, you know, you bring up a really good point, Ben. And if listeners are not familiar with ancient cosmology, then a quick Google search for what that looks like will give will give you a picture that we'd have a hard time painting here in words. I mean, I think that the dome, the, the firmament, when you hear firmament, hear firm, right? Yeah. I usually knock on my desk or pulpit or wherever I'm doing this. I'm not going to do that on the podcast. But you should hear firm in firmament. And so, yeah, the stars are and the planets are set in that firmament. And it's if you've never understood the separation of the waters above from the waters below, well, then understand that uh, the waters above are being held back by the firmament such that the windows of heavens are, are, are open. The windows of heaven are open and water comes down. And that's how we get the delusion. We're getting there, right? Yeah, We're going to get yeah. there eventually. By chapter 6, when God is so angry that he just destroys everything, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll give a different interpretation of that when we come to it. Sure. But that's, that's what it looks like. This is why the old Testament is so troublesome for people sometimes. So you brought up Ben, one of the, you know, these evidences that Walton gives for old world science, which is different from our science, their understanding. He gives other evidences in his book. And he also goes into biblical and ancient Near Eastern evidences for the idea of function over structure as being what's be, as what's dealt with in Genesis 1. Function over structure, both biblical evidences and ancient Near Eastern evidences. We're not going to go into all of those. What we're going to do now, Ben, is let's go into what do we actually do with this? If we understand Genesis 1 as a temple text, then what do we do with it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. <laughs> well, I hinted at an answer earlier, Ben, which is we have a temple text, If this is ancient Israel's temple text, we have our own. And so we can, of course, read this and let it function for us in our own psyche, again, without necessarily going to the temple. Maybe uh, we live too far away. Maybe we're uh, working on uh, getting there in in one sense or another. Let's talk about what, what it actually means to go to the temple in antiquity. And here we'll go into some ideas from the myth of the eternal return, cosmos and history from Mircea Eliade, who is a Romanian uh, scholar of comparative religion. So the main idea of Eliade's book, The Myth of the Eternal Return, is that the point of going to the temple, contrary to what we tend to think as Latter-day Saints, as you know, we think of it in terms of we're going to the temple to learn. Well, you go to the temple and you learn about creation, and that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, if you've been to the temple, You've learned about creation, and as a matter of fact, you could also read Moses one, uh, or, or Moses what is it two and three, and Abraham four through five. Right. Uh, you could read the Quran. You could go to the temple. So what what he points out is that in going to the temple, and this really changed my experience of going to the temple. And I've talked to others who have read the same book and had the same experience. It can really alter your experience of the temple to think about it this way. That is, that instead of thinking about going to the temple as learning about the creation of the cosmos, which is again learning about the ordering of a chaotic world into, and and maybe I shouldn't even say world because world is really another translation for cosmos, ordering of cosmos into a world, God's world for us, that is this orderly place that has a form and a function and a place for us as functionaries in it, as Adam and Eve were functionaries in this story. And so if we think about it that way, then we're actually taking ourselves out of the world. And this is one sense in which the church does teach us that we're leaving the world when we go into the temple, right? We're leaving the world and we're going into the temple. So we leave that that chaos of the world behind and we go back to the temple again and again, not because we're learning something new because we've already been there. Of course, we can get new insights and new revelation, personal revelation in the experience of going to the temple. But aside from that, the idea that Eliad is giving that the ancients, what they were doing is they were going into the temple to bring themselves out of chaos back into order. So this rests on the idea that anything and everything that they do that follows a model. And I think of Christ here who says, he never did anything save you saw the father do it hmm. in following a model. So anything that they do that follows a model is sacred. They're sacred acts, whether it's planting, harvesting, Marrying, all of these things are sacred acts. Anything that you would do that wouldn't be a sacred act would actually take you out of the order. Remember that order we we're talking about, Ben—that inner order in your soul and the order in the community, right? So it's it's as Americans, it's difficult to understand this because this very individualist conception of of a way of being. I look at Jesus; he doesn't look to me like he's trying to be an individual. He looks like he's perfectly following the model that the Father has set forth for him. And he's asking us, come follow me to follow that same model, right? Mm-hmm. And so in doing this, they didn't really have an idea of time like our idea of time. The, the idea of the myth of the eternal return, the, that title, what it's saying is in going back to the temple, they went back to in the beginning. So that idea of in the beginning, it's a place that you go in time. You actually, there's a sacred space, which is the temple, and there's a sacred time which is what he calls aborigine, which is the Latin in the beginning, right, at the origin, or in illo tempore, in that time. And by that time is meant that primordial time when the cosmos is created out of the chaos. There's an idea of a timeless cyclical, which is very much evident in the Book of Mormon. And it's something that we talk about as Latter-day Saints, the cyclical nature of, of the way that time is seen in the Book of Mormon. And so it's not that the ancient peoples didn't know that they were in a timeline because they see children being born and people growing old and grandpa dying, right? You can see all that and you see that that happens in a timeline, but they didn't want to see themselves in a timeline. They wanted to take themselves out of history. It's very much a Roman idea to put things in this kind of historical context. They wanted to take themselves out of that and he even Meliata mentions a terror of history and go back in illo tempore back aborigine, back into the in the beginning when god created the heavens and earth and bring themselves out of that chaos of those actions which were profane and by profane i mean anything that doesn't follow a model back into order
0: well it's the process of dying and being reborn right so there's that as well you know this really fits with what we talked about again with the the hebrew mindset and the language especially not having necessarily a future and a past tense. Basically, you have a perfect and an imperfect or something that's complete and versus incomplete, right? Either the work is is in progress or it's finished, right? Right. That's interesting, again, in, in terms of the creation because you have a work in progress and then it's finished and he rests. You have a work in progress and then it's finished and he rests. And so we're going to the temple in order to Complete that out, right? The assumption is that you always do go back into the world, right? Because you, there's that cycle, and then you you return to the temple in order to make sense of all of that chaos that you just experienced in your life, right?
1: You've been so working you, through,
0: yeah. So you come back into the temple and you reorder all of that in a sense. I love that, and and all of that is brought back into and put into its proper place. And ordered. And then what do you do? You don't stay there. You don't stay in the temple. You go back out and you experience and then you come back in. And it's this constant process of incomplete and complete.
1: Yeah. So, Ben, when you say that, it makes me think that the day that we go to the temple, not literally, but archetypally, right? Metaphysically, figuratively, metaphorically, is that seventh day. So we do our work in the world six days. And on the seventh day, we go back into the temple to complete that work. So again, it's it's part of the work, right? This resting isn't about kicking back and relaxing, but it sure is peace producing. Yeah. Right? To go back into the order out of the chaos and complete that action that will then have to begin again in a new cycle between the time that we leave the temple and the time that we go back again, putting things back in their in their proper order. Yeah. And so there really is a, a very real sense of what we've been taught in church, you know, in this scene in this new light, right? This idea that you actually find peace in the temple. It's not just because it's a quiet place. Look, if you don't have quiet in your life, well, yeah, it's going to be great to go to the temple, you can, but you can do that somewhere else too, right? Another thing that, that really is, is brought out in Eliada's book is that the temple is at the center of the world. And the church teaches us to make the temple the center of our worship and the center of our lives in that sense, right? The temple is always built in antiquity at what is considered to be the center of the world. And, you know, we know that in the cosmos, in the wider universe, there is no center, but for our pur- purposes and from our point of view, it's where we are, right? And so the, the, the center of the world is going to be this axis mundi, this world axis, Right where heaven and earth meet. So this is the place where God comes down and takes his place in the temple. And so it's a place, the temple at the center of the world, at the axis mundi, at the world axis, is the place where heaven and earth meet. And as a matter of fact, even uh, going all the way through that axis, you go down to hell. And we see in Dante's Inferno, or in the Commedia, right, in the entire comedy, that you come down all the way into the depths of hell to then work your way back up through Mount Purgatory. And at the top of Mount Purgatory is where you find the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is this walled garden, right? This Pardis, you know, paradise. Pardis is the the Persian. And I, I don't know Persian. I don't I don't know if I <laughs> pronounced it correctly, just like you, uh, we don't know Hebrew. Uh, but Pardis, where you can see paradise comes from, P-A-R-D-I-S, is going to be this walled garden. There's a sense in which it is a temple too. And we can see next week as we go into the discussion of Adam and Eve and them leaving the garden, it really is going out of that sacred space into the world. Into the lone and dreary world, yeah. Into the lone and dreary world. And so then, of course, there has to be a temple where they can go back to.
0: You know, that pattern, we we saw it in Moses chapter one, right? Because... He he has experience and he goes down and sees the the bitterness of hell or see, he is scared by Satan, right? So there's that that experience and then comes back up. DNC 76 does that because Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon see a vision and then they go and they see perdition and then they come back up, right? So it follows that that same sort of pattern and it happens to to a certain extent in the temple, right? You know, Satan comes and cast out, and then there's the understanding. So your progression through the kingdoms. So
1: yeah, this is this is a pattern that that you see in, in ancient and medieval literature. It's the pattern of of Odysseus in Book Eleven of the Odyssey going down to Hades and he sees his father there, and of Aeneas in Book Six of the Aeneid, he does the same thing, goes down to Hades, sees his father. You can see it, of course. Overall, uh, there's a sense in which we can say in all of the Commedia, but particularly in Canto Two of Inferno, and so there and of course it's an Egyptian uh, text. Mm-hmm there's always this descent what's called the katabasis that precedes the ascent the anabasis and this is something actually that riley and i have talked about we had an episode we had a guest to talk about the the divine comedy of dante travis patton we've had a i can't i can't think of all the episodes but this is something that, a theme that we've revisited and we may actually revisit again on uh, latter day contemplation on our sister podcast Well,
0: you know, I think where our discussion has gone kind of bears a little bit of reflection that the fact that, you know, when you start with the discussion of the creation, you start getting into all of these very basic fundamental uh, patterns and themes about the way things are, are structured in reality, psychologically. And again, this is why these creation myths are so powerful, there's so much in them that's difficult for us to articulate as humans still in really any other way. We, we continue to retell these because they say so much about... Uh, the human experience and i will say that uh, one of the approaches to this that i thought was was very useful and did articulate some things really well was when jordan peterson did his bible lectures and he went through some of the psychological implications of some of this but there are many basic and and very profound themes in this and there's there's no way in any amount of time that we could you know explore all the depths of it
1: yeah, you and I and my son all put in the time to listen to that series of lectures. It's available on YouTube if inter- uh, listeners are interested. Each lecture is three hours long, and I don't remember how many lectures there are, but we enjoyed every single one of them and, and profited from them. So, Ben, in in closing, you know the the discussion and coming full circle, I think we should just go back a little bit and recap. and And I wanted to make a comparison between when I say that in the beginning that the story, I said, the story actually begins in in slavery in Egypt, right, in, in Exodus, not in the beginning, you know, in Genesis. And I wanted to make a comparison. And I know you have something to add to this, Ben, where, you know, when it comes to our experience of the world, we have access to the world through our senses. And so epistemologically, what comes first to us is our awareness of the world. What comes second is the world itself. In other words, first we realize that we're aware, and then we realize because we are aware that there has to be something for us to be aware of, and therefore that which we're aware of actually comes first. And that's why we have this in the beginning text, right? The metaphysical reality is prior to our experience of it, but in our experience of it, that's what comes first. So first I'm in Egypt in slavery And I'm aware of this and I'm calling out to God and I want to know what's underneath all this. And that's where I get to the to get to the bottom of it. We have to go back to the beginning and have more of a metaphysical conversation.
0: Right. But you can't have that conversation to the beginning until you first have the tools and experience in order to understand it by. I, it's almost paradoxical in one sense. I was talking with my wife about this the other day because this is actually neurologically true. One of the reasons that you don't really remember, most people don't really remember things that happen before they're around two years old or so um, is because they don't they don't have enough life experience, particularly with language, because of how how intricately tied um, our memory is with language. In order to contextualize and and tie together memories because memories are activated when they are integrated with other parts of our life and experience. And when that structure doesn't exist yet, those memories become sort of islands, right? They're not connected to everything else. So around two years old, getting into three and four is when we linguistically we're getting there and then our life experiences to the point that we start being able to form a structure of experience that we can start putting attaching new experiences to and so then our memory really starts to hold on it's not like we didn't remember things before that we just we can't recall them because they're not attached to things as strongly as as our experience from then on all that to say that again you know going back to your point that you were saying Christopher that the reason that the beginning isn't necessarily the beginning is because the beginning can't be conceptualized of or put into a proper meaning and understanding until you first come to that crisis, right? And you start needing to know what the beginning is. Like nobody's going to care about what the creation is until you come to a point in your life where that needs to have meaning. And then all of a sudden the creation matters.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, it brings up something that will come up again next week another teaser for next week's discussion is this will come to to the forefront when when we talk about Adam naming things i think this is i think this what you've said hints at what happens next with adam it adam also goes
0: things. to the the knowledge of good and evil that concept as well
1: indeed it does yeah so it, it comes into these these conceptualizations and this dualism which is this double bind you know all of all of what happens what starts happening in the garden is these double binds, right? And that become our human experience as a whole. You know, Ben, I've been reading what some scholars say is the oldest book in the Bible, you know, the oldest book that was included in the Bible, even though it's not in the beginning. And I think it bears mentioning here because it's the same idea, right? That you have to be in this place where you're calling out to God uh, from a place of of suffering, a place of oppression, mm-hmm. And it's actually the book of Job I'm referring to. And, and here you have Job and he is, and we'll come back to Job. I, I can't wait to talk about Job more when we get to it. But Job is in that place. He's in that place of why me, <laughs> right? And, mm-hmm. and that's the wrong question, by the way, right? But <laughs> that, that'll be another, uh, another discussion uh, for another day when we get there. Absolutely.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I know we're going to be closing in a little bit of question on my mind and maybe the question of some of the listeners might be, well, you didn't really read many verses or quote much text or, or reference much out of the actual accounts. So I'm going to say uh, one of the reasons for that is that the, the creation story is told and retold so much that people have it in their minds, I think, pretty well. And, and obviously they can approach the text and go to it. This isn't an unknown story. What I think that we did today was maybe give people some tools or open up some new perspectives for them to start to to mine this story a little more than they have before and pull some things out of it of value to them than they maybe have, have gotten before. So for me, that's kind of why we took that approach as opposed to maybe some previous times when we've really delved into the text itself more.
1: I agree. And, you know, there's more to it from my point of view, Ben, which is, you know, first of all, because we have these four different accounts to actually go verse by verse and, and do commentary yeah. would take too long that's one thing right and there's also this caveat I, I do at the same time i do invite the listener to take what we've given here and to actually go into the text with it and think about these things you know uh, that that we've talked about you know you're right ben in saying that we all know the story so to speak but here's the thing what is in your mind is it really what is it is it genesis 1 or is it Genesis 2? Did you not realize that they actually aren't the same account? They're different. By the way, Genesis 1 isn't... When we say Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that's actually uh, a little bit sloppy, right? Because, and I'm not sure why the chapters are divided the way they are, right. but it turns out that the the first account of creation, which is the one scholars attribute to an author called P for priestly, runs from Genesis one, 1 to Genesis 2.3 and you can see this in your King James Bible. Well, first of all, you can see if you're paying attention, you can see it in where the story sort of wraps up and a new story begins in verse 4 of chapter 2. It is two. a
0: very odd way of dividing the chapters. I'm not sure. It why. is. There's
1: also a paragraph marker that kind yeah. <laughs> of indicates something's going on there, right? And that's that if you're not familiar with that mark in your Bible, it's it looks like a backwards P with two lines through it, kind of like a dollar sign. That's that's a paragraph marker. And then the second account, which is the J account, which is J is for Yahwist, which is having to do with Yahweh or the the unnamable, right? The the Tetragrammaton that represents God's name that we read as the Lord in the King James Bible, which is a translation sometimes of transliterated Jehovah. Yes, uh, which is re- reading for Adonai, yeah. uh, our uh, Lord for Adonai, to not mention the name of God. And so, in the the J comes from the German, which is instead of the Y, and so that's Genesis two four through 324. So we'll actually continue in this conversation next week as we go into the Adam and Eve story. We didn't really talk about Adam and Eve at all. They're, of course, created as part of the creation, but their story we'll deal with separately. And so the question is, which of these stories is in your mind? Is it really a mix of all of them? And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, why are there different accounts and what do you do with them? And so again, I leave you with that question, not with an answer, but with the question. And encourage you know, and invite you, and encourage you to sit with that question, and to invite you also to participate in the ritual that is going to the temple, and renewing the cosmos. There's there's a meaning to having that that building, right? That's a, that's a the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God enters and takes His rest, the place where you can be in the presence of God. It's at the center of the world, and yet we have how many of them today? In ancient Israel, there was only one, right? And in fact it becomes movable at some point and then the the Jews end up doing without it right Then they don't have it and it just becomes a whole different thing. And so part of the restoration is having that temple at the same time if you are too far away, you can't make it, you're preparing in one way or the other, then you can still go into these texts with that mindset. you know it's like it's kind you can of still
0: like, go to the temple. You can, sense, exactly, right? yeah. yeah.
1: So in a, in a certain sense, I'll give you a, 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 by analogy what I mean, Ben. You know, when when I sit down to meditate, it's to sit with God. But my meditation teacher didn't say anything about God. And so my, uh, my new meditation, my original meditation teacher didn't say anything about God. So my new meditation teacher asked me about my practice. And when I described it, he only added one thing, and that is when you sit down, to sit with God, actually have that intention, right? Just to have that intention that this is what I'm doing. I want to read through this text as a temple text, and actually have the experience of not just learning about the creation of the cosmos, but entering into it and entering into the presence of God. To borrow from from the Islamic tradition, where you know, there's a mosque, which is a, pl- a place of prostration. The, the Arabic masjid literally means place of prostration there's a hadith from the prophet Muhammad that says, the whole earth is a masjid. Mm -hmm. So any place, you can pray anywhere, you can find God anywhere, the kingdom of God is within you. And so you can turn inward and you can find that peace in that order that God has created for you. You can return to that out of the chaos of your life at any time, at any place. And yet there's the temple. I, I think there's a little bit of a contradiction there. Ben, but I want to invite anyone and everyone into that possibility of that place of peace.
0: Yeah, we we talked about it in an earlier podcast. The temple is there to teach us that we don't need the temple. Ah, like, <laughs> very good, very good. And 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 so the temple is essential in teaching us that. You know, Christ goes off in the wilderness to be with God. You know, you technically should be able to do that without some building you go to. That the fact remains that. It's very difficult without that. Um, and so it can be something that is is very helpful and an aid to that end,
1: right? Yeah, very much so.
0: And then there's people there to 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 guide you in that so so that
1: can be very helpful. very much so. And yet it is there to tell us that that it is that we don't need it. I mean we're told to make our homes a temple, right? We're told that right. our body is a temple, whether it's uh, whether we read that as you know as as intended as the body of Christ, the community of Christ or whether we think of it. And why not think of it as, a, as our own individual body and in terms of, again, ordering our soul, ordering our, the, our community, the community of Christ, our polis, our world, right? The world that God has created for us, that he wants to be at peace. He wants us to love our, uh, one another in that way. And by the way, Ben, we can say the same thing about the text that you said about the temple. The text, any sacred text, any one of these accounts that we've talked about is the penultimate word. Hmm. The ultimate word is beyond language. So here you have prophets that have given their own experience of God as best they could in human language, which is puny compared to an experience of God and just cannot contain an experience of God. And so in that sense, we can also say that we should be working our way out of the text and into an experience of God, our own experience of God, following the model that That you and i talked about joseph smith giving us when we went through the doctrine and covenants well ben is there anything you'd like to add in closing no
0: i think that's great that's those were mirroring many of my thoughts exactly so i appreciate that well thanks everybody for listening here we really would appreciate uh, any input you feel like sharing uh, commenting subscribe to the podcast you can comment on youtube you can comment on the apple Podcasts and rate us there as well Also, in any of the Facebook post groups, um, you can do that as well. We appreciate uh, the support and, and input that we have from everybody. So until next time, I'm Ben Peterson.
1: And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks.